We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Our speaker today is the senior pastor, Tom Nelson. Well, I'd like you to look at this text that Charles read to you in Mark, in chapter 4, in verse 30 and following. An interesting just couple of verses right here. Up until this point, we're looking at, in chapter uh, 4 of Mark, what we call the pivotal time in Christ's ministry, when he has been now blasphemed by Israel's leaders, and he has, in a sense, put the coup de grace to them. He has executed the nation, that you have done a sin from which you cannot return. Your national leaders blasphemed God. And he immediately begins to withdraw and to speak of the mystery of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is not just going to be a time, as the Old Testament teaches, with the appearance of Messiah and his rule over all the earth, that there's going to be an aspect of it that you can't know if you merely read your Old Testament. There is now a mystery, something unseen, and that is the mystery of the church, of Jew and Gentile, both in one body, uh, as in the parable of the sower, uh, in a period where a message will be thrown out, three out of four will reject it with no immediate judgment, Uh, some bearing great fruit waiting for a time that we saw last week in the parable of the seed. That uh, in the parable of the seed, we saw there's an age where God will bestow divine life. He will bestow divine life, quote, uh, by itself, how he himself does not know. It will be a sovereign prerogative of God to mysteriously grant his life, his divine life to those of his good pleasure. And that that life will spring up and it will be nurtured by God. Yet there will be what we would call spiritual growth. And it will take time. It will go from the blade to the stalk to the head to the full grain. It will be progressively that God will bring growth and then that age will come to an end. It will not last forever. That God will take them down and take them home and gather his own to himself. Are you with me? Christ has been saying some things that are not in the Old Testament. And so his ministry is pivoting at this point. In a sense, we're going from the Old Testament to what will become the New Testament. We're laying the acorn of it that the apostles are going to develop into an oak. Well, here in verse 30, Jesus is going to not tell a parable about individuals, like the parable of the sower, like the parable of the seed, of this seed that springs up and progressively grows. Those are parables about divine life given to the individual. Now in verse 30, by what shall we picture the kingdom of God? We're not going to look at individuals. We're going to look at the entire kingdom from one end to the other. What will this age of the church, what's it going to look like? And what he says is verse 31, for the third time, he says, it is like a seed. Parable of the sower, parable of the seed, 
parable of the mustard seed. Three times it's a seed that the church age is a message that commutes divine life. There is resurrection life. There is what Paul would call newness of life, what Jesus was called, would call the rebirth. Uh, Peter would say, you have been born again, not of seed perishable, but imperishable, the living and abiding word of God. And so the kingdom is like, in verse 31, a mustard seed. Now, a mustard seed is tiny. It's like a little speck of pepper is all that it is. And yet, when it flourishes, it's the largest of the garden plants. And in verse 32, now the birds of the air can come nest in it on its branches. They can find uh, security under its shade. They can find rest in nesting in the branches. There'll be strength and there will be rest that's going to be found in this, in the church, this thing that comes from a mustard seed. Now, if you were a Jew and you heard this, you would step back puzzled. Because as you understood the kingdom of God, uh, they shall look on me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for me as for an only son, and he will come down at Armageddon, and he shall make Israel as a threshing sledge, and he shall trample his enemies uh, until his robes are purple with the blood of his enemies, Isaiah 63. And then he will judge the world, and he will establish his kingdom, and all the world shall worship the king. Does that sound like a mustard seed? It isn't. It's the appearance of Christ the Messiah in glory. Well, he talked here that the kingdom of God is like the tiniest of all things. And it's going to start so small, and yet once it is grown up, it's gonna be the largest of all of the garden plants. Now you say, that's not in my Old Testament. I know it isn't. Just like the parable of the sower, seeing a message rejected with no judgment immediately. That's not in your Old Testament. Of seeing the kingdom of God in an individual's life grow up progressively, and then all of a sudden the age is ended. That's not in your Old Testament. This parable of the mustard seed, of a kingdom that begins ignominiously. Let me help you, Doug. That means low and despised. It doesn't appear with the heavens rolled back like a scroll when the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, it is well with my soul. In other words, these don't occur in any scenario that the Jew could imagine because this aspect of the church, this aspect of the kingdom is called a mystery. Now you're starting to understand. Jesus is showing something that God is going to do that you don't know before. It's going to be something we're going to inform people about of what God has done. It's a mystery. Because it's gonna be a mustard seed. It's going to begin with one singular carpenter who is going to be tortured 
for six hours and rejected and lied about. And his disciples are going to bolt themselves up in a room for fear of their nation. And he is going to lie there and women are going to come to put spices on his body, uh, not knowing who is going to move the rock from the tomb because they think he will still be dead. Question, does anybody on that first Easter morning have a clue what's going on? No one has a clue except God. And they will get there, and this man who is now placed in his tomb, no, it's a borrowed tomb. He had no retirement program. It's a borrowed tomb. And there is a stone in front of it and a seal on it and guards around it. How come? Because everybody hates this man. And they know that if they can, his disciples are going to come steal it. And we don't want anybody to think, quote, that deceiver said when he was here that he would rise from the dead. If his disciples come and take him, which we know he isn't going to rise from the dead, but if they come and take him, the last deception will be better than the first. So this is what you call a mustard seed. This is the ultimate comeback story. And so they come and this one man has come to life. And then a woman comes named Mary Magdalene. She sees it empty. She sees a man who she thinks is the gardener. Sir, if you know where my, the body of my Lord is, tell me that I might take him. Mary, rabbi, and she fell and worshiped. Now we have one man plus one. Is that called a mustard seed? We've got one woman. And then he appears as he goes to the, sends uh, Mary to the apostles, go tell them that I have risen. And they go, and the apostles say, that's nonsense. He appears to them, they believe, and now it's one woman plus 11. And then he, I'm sorry, yeah, 11. And then we're going to go get Thomas. Is that right? And we will have one plus, no, I'm wrong. We had one plus 10. Then we got Thomas and there's one plus 11 because Judas has taken off. And so all we have is Mary, a few women, 12, 11 men. That's a mustard seed. And then 40 days later, we're going to have 120 that are gathered to pray in Acts 1. And then we're going to have 4,120 after Pentecost. And then... Uh, we will go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. We're going to go into Damascus and Antioch of Syria. And we're going to expand. And then we're going to go uh, to, let's see, a little bit later. What does it say here in verse 32? It becomes larger than all. It's going to sprout, then it's going to get larger. Peter's going to preach again. And we're going to have 3,000 more. We're going to have 7,120. And then we're going to spread into 
Antioch and into Damascus of Syria. Then we're going to go down into Ethiopia with the Ethiopian eunuch. And then we're going to go to um, Galatia, southern Turkey, and the first missionary journey of Paul. Then we're going to go into Greece and into Macedon and Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth. And then we're going to go into Asia at Ephesus. And then we're going to go all the way to Rome. And then the Roman Empire in the fourth century AD is going to make Christianity the official religion. And then the tribes are going to come in and they're going to become converted. And we're now going to convert and ascribe to Christianity most all of Western Europe and England and Scotland and Ireland. And then we're going to go across the pond into the Americas. And then we're going to go in the 20th century to Japan and China and Asia and Russia and Austin. Okay. You know what I'd say, Doug? I'd say we started as a mustard seed. Would you have bet on the church at that first Easter? No way. And now we are, as Jesus said, the largest of all the plants. What is the biggest religion in human history? Christianity. Are there false believers out there? Just like Jesus said there would be. But it is the largest belief system in the history of man on this planet. Did God just amen? Okay. And so, uh, you know what I would say? It is gone to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the outermost parts of the earth, just like Jesus said was going to happen. And it happened. How does it feel to be sitting in the midst of fulfilled prophecy? That's you. He said this, and he saw you when he said it. A church full of Gentiles. Well, uh, why, let me just do a little preaching here. Why is it that this seed, so tiny, so despised, that was under attack from Rome and from Israel and the Sanhedrin, it's under attack from everyone. How does it end up being so big? Theologians say, and that whenever you read a book on church history, You'll have uh, readings in the first of the book as to how this smallest of all ideologies ended up not merely as the biggest religion on planet Earth, but it brought, basically, it exported the Old Testament biblical truth on God, creation, man, redemption, sin, right and wrong. Would you say that's important to civilization? Yeah, you can't have culture without cult, which means religious rules. And so Christianity was a vector. It was a carrier of biblical perception to the entire planet Earth. That's what it was. And the question always comes up, how was it so amenable to man? Well, number one, it had a life all of its own. It wasn't merely believing a belief system a philosophy, 
or a set of rules. Jesus said, you must be born again. You will get off of your knees a new creation. Have you ever wanted, have men ever wanted just to stop and start over? To stop the world, I want to get off. This is your dream. This is the way you can do it. You can start all over. You ever wanted to be clean from your past? You ever wanted to have a new nature that would now be compliant with what you knew was best? Well, that's called the rebirth. And so, one theologian said, Christianity is catchy. C-A-T-C-H-Y. It's catchy. That when you smell it, if you are those of the elect, you go, amen. If that's not true, it ought to be true. And so the church would be light and salt. And then secondly, Christianity has no capital. We don't all go to Mecca. We don't all go to Jerusalem. We, we have no particular country. We have no religious site. Did y'all know that? We have no Dome of the Rock. We have no temple. We have no Mount Fuji that we go to, like the Buddhist. No. Uh, we close our eyes and we say, Our Father, who art in heaven. Okay. We're there. An anchor of the soul, steadfast and sure, that enters within the veil where Christ has entered for us as a forerunner for the people of God. And so we, have, we can't make a pilgrimage. If you want to make a pilgrimage, where do you want to go? First Baptist Dallas? Okay, that's, that's all right. That's where Dr. Criswell was. But we, you can't make a pilgrimage in Christianity. People did it in the old days. They would go to Jerusalem. But uh, we have no capital. We have, quote, our mother above that is the holy city in heaven. And so... We are a people of whom it is said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The grace of God hath appeared, Titus chapter 2, bringing salvation to all men, anybody. In him there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor freeman, male nor female, Scythian, barbarian, uh, Greek nor Jew, but Christ is all and in all. And so we are now the body of Christ, the family of God. And so we are a religion that no culture inhibits it. It'll take off through everybody. And then the third thing is that it solves the deepest need of man, that it provides us philosophically. I don't need a philosopher to by reason or by empiricism figure out the great question of where did I come from, who am I, what is evil, how it is removed, and what is the end of history. That's what philosophy tries to do. Philosophy of the love of wisdom, to figure out in yourself the great answers. We have no way of doing that because I can't get beyond what I can see. Somebody had better speak. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, 
and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten God, full of grace and truth. And so, the deepest need we have is for where did all the great questions, they are now solved through Christ who illumines us to the word of God. Amen. And so this is the greatest solution. And then secondly, religion. Uh, What do you not talk about at parties? Politics and religion. Because no one has any way of knowing how religiously can I be rightly connected to God once again? How can I get rid of my guilt? How can I change my nature? How can I go through life and face death not afraid that I'm going to go to hell. Because if you really stop and really ponder on that, life is a terrifying thing. I know that I'm guilty. What if heaven is better than me? And what if God will punish us? I remember when I was a old pagan, me and the girl that I was dating, we got to talking about religion. And I remember her saying, uh, maybe nobody's going to get there. Maybe it's all going to be just a furnace at the end. And I remember she put her head in her hands and wept. She was looking for answers from the wrong person right here. I could tell her nothing because she was better than me. All right. There was nothing I could say. And so, you know, Martin Luther was a good, ultimate, a true Catholic. He was working as hard as he could because he was terrified of the righteousness of God. And he was, you know, a lot of times you'll see a Catholic that just sends like crazy, shows up at confession, checks out, punches in, clocks out. Anybody with me? All right. Or a Protestant that just goes crazy shows up on Sunday morning, clocks in, sings a song, and goes out. They're just going through the motions. Luther was the real deal, and he was scared of perishing and burning in purgatory and not getting out. And so he was working continually to earn his way out. That's why he became a monk. You've heard me say it before. He couldn't even perform communion or the mass at his first mass where you elevated the host and it turned into the body of Christ, so to speak. He couldn't do it. He trembled and he shook and he had to lay it down. He would come to confession and the priest would run when he came because they knew they're going to be there all past lunch into the evening hours with Martin Luther digging up every sin he ever did. Uh, And he wrote in his diary, love God, I hated him. And so what do you do with a crazy guy? You send him to teach in a in a college, a university, okay. They sent him to Wittenberg, and there he came across. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is in it the righteousness of God is revealed. It is the power of God unto salvation, and he got saved. And so man without an assurance that my sin has been dealt with, and I can stand before a holy God forgiven, Not because I have pleaded for it, but because there's been a time and space historic punishment of what I did that is the centerpiece of an entire book that thick. You dig? 
Because of that, I can rest easy. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. Uh, has been nailed to the cross. COVID. All right. <laughs> has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. It is well. It is well with my soul. Amen. Somebody had better point me to where somebody died for what I did and rose from the dead. Does Christianity provide that? So philosophically and religiously, I'm okay. And it has to occur not in the theology of a man and in the thoughts of a man. It had better occur, quote, Agrippa, you know these things have not happened in a corner. That's what Paul said. It has to be historical. You got to show me to a Calvary. You got to show me to an empty tomb. I have to know, I got to see it, that somebody rose from the dead. Psychologically, it puts me in touch with who I am. I'm not an animal. I am in the image of God. Socially, it puts me in touch with who you are. We regard no man according to the flesh. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. New things have come. And so practically, will it help me become a better husband, a woman, a better mother and wife, a better citizen, a better work ethic, more honest? You can, my, my word is now my bond. It will improve society socially, practically, philosophically, religiously, and psychologically as to how I regard myself. It is the Oz at the end of the yellow brick road. And so that's why theologians, historians say, that's why this religion took off, was because it had a life of its own. It was universal to all men. And it hypothetically was the dream of mankind, that it would solve all of the issues of man. Amen. Ain't that something? We could go home right now, but we ain't, okay? And so, if you'll look at verse 32. When it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, forms large branches. The birds of the air can nest under its shade. Uh, Stay with me. A kingdom in the Bible, whenever God speaks of a kingdom, Egypt, Assyria, uh, Greece, Rome. So often he will speak of it as a tree because a tree is a great picture of a kingdom. A tree has no life of its own. It's given life by God, okay? And a tree, when it grows up, offers security and it offers rest and shade. It's a marvelous thing. You ever read that poem? of uh, poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. And so a kingdom often is pictured as a tree. Uh, Or a kingdom is pictured as something else. When it's in right relationship to God, a kingdom is a tree. It's a 
It's a, like when you look at our culture, what would happen if we were just all on our own and it was every man for himself? It would be terrifying. But we have a civilization. We have rulers. We have a constitution. We have rules. Our problem is, is whether they're right or not or, or are we consistent with it. But nevertheless, we have a civilization. All right. And so a kingdom is a tree. If a kingdom loses sight of God, now it becomes a beast. Y'all know that? Book of Daniel, book of Revelation, kingdoms without God are not referred to as trees. They're referred to as beasts because a beast is an animal that can tear your throat out when it is not under control. And historically, that is what you see in political science. You see trees that become beasts and they're terrifying. And so I want to show you something. Keep your finger right there and go back to your left to the book of Ezekiel. We're going to be here for a while, waiting on you to find Ezekiel. When you find Ezekiel, stand up, okay? Just kidding. In Ezekiel chapter 31, I just want to show you something, that Jesus has a, um, a template when he explains this. In Ezekiel 31, in verse uh, 2, Son of man, say to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to his hordes, whom are you like in your greatness? And in verse 3, he compares Egypt to Assyria. Whom are you like in your greatness? Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon. Big, beautiful branches, forest shade. Very high, top among the clouds. In verse 4, it was because of God. The waters made it grow. Uh, the deep, the springs made it high. Question, what happens when drought comes? What happens to your trees? They die. I used to have the prettiest bald cypresses in my uh, yard and then the the summer of whatever it was hit, and they're gone. All right. Sorrow for me. Okay. And so verse 4, with its rivers, it continually extended all around its planting place. Assyria is situated in what is called the Fertile Crescent. Remember that from your schooling? It's in between two rivers, Tigris and Euphrates, that you could now spread out and you could do business. And so, uh, verse 6, look who can rest in the branches. The birds of the heavens nested in the branches. If you have a Bible with a cross-reference, if you'll look at it, it probably says Matthew 13 or Mark chapter 5. Because Jesus is referring to this. The kingdom of heaven, uh, the church, is a kingdom. And if you'll notice in verse 9, I made it beautiful. With the multitude of its branches, verse 10, because it is high in stature and has set his heart top among the clouds and its heart is haughty in loftiness, 11, I will give it into the hands of a despot of the nation, Babylon, and he will thoroughly deal with it according to its wickedness. I have driven it away. Question, where does the kingdom of a great tree, any tree, come from? God. If that kingdom becomes arrogant, you tell me. 
what can God do? You can take it out. I'm just glad we're America and we're above that, you know. That's a joke. I can take it out. And that's why when we study history, we study the story of kingdoms that have risen and have fallen. God takes them out. Except for one kingdom that goes all the way back to 1500 B.C. It was delivered on one day by God out of Egypt. It grew into a great kingdom. It has been destroyed on seven different occasions, and it is still around today. What nation are we talking about? Israel. There's something magic about them. There's a covenant between them and God. You will not become like Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome. I'll continue you. And so, if you'll look at uh, Daniel chapter 4, go to your right a little. In Daniel 4, God is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And he saw a vision in Daniel chapter 4, verse 10. These were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. Eleven, it grew large. Twelve, its foliage was abundant. And if you'll look down in twelve, the beast of the field found shade. The birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. Look at your cross-references again. You see Matthew 13 again? Christ is referring to this. That is what a kingdom is. It's meant to be a group of people that are blessed by God's common grace that become a place of security and a place of rest. But when that kingdom like Nebuchadnezzar gets arrogant in verse 14, he shouted out and spoke as follows, the angel did. Chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip its foliage, scatter its fruit, let the beast flee and the birds from its branches. Just like Assyria in Ezekiel 31, God says, I can raise you up and I can, I can take you out. If you become arrogant and forget me, I will take you out. And so down in verse 17, the last four lines, that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. He bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. God is great. And so that is true of Assyria, the cedar, and it is true of Babylon, the great tree. Now, go back to Ezekiel 17. In Ezekiel 17, we're talking about Israel being taken out by Babylon. And uh, in chapter 17, verse 4, this is what Babylon, trust me, that's the context, is going to do to Israel. That he plucked off 
And the he is talking about uh, the king of Babylon. He plucked off the topmost of its young twigs. When Babylon conquered the tree of Judea, of Jerusalem, of Israel, he destroyed, but he plucked off the topmost twig, and that was the Jewish king. His name is Jehoiakim. And he took Jehoiakim away, and he made him his slave, and he even changed his name, that you now belong to me. Well, that's what God was going to do to Israel. Now, the hope that Israel has is in verse 22. Of, I, of Ezekiel 17. Look at verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I will also take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar. Speaking of Israel as a tree, and God says, I someday am going to take the lofty top. I'm going to take a Jewish king. And I will set it out, and I will pluck from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one. The lofty top is once again, God is going to preserve the Jewish king. Question, what would have happened if when Babylon took Israel's king away, if that king and his seed to come had died? Question, did God make a promise to the Jewish dynasty, the, the dynasty of David, that someday I will raise up a Davidic king who will rule the world? Did he say that? Yes, he did. And so whenever Jehoiakim is taken away into slavery, what happens if he and his lineage dies? There will be no Messiah. And if there is no Messiah, there will be no Calvary. And if there is no Calvary, who in this room is going to hell? Everyone in this room. Would y'all like to keep looking at this? Yeah. And so God says, I'm going to preserve that seed. And so God is going to bring back to Israel a guy who is going to come back and rebuild the temple. You ever read the book of Ezra? In the book of Ezra, there is a high priest named Joshua the high priest, and there is a descendant of the Jewish dynasty of David. Starts with a Z, sounds like Urababel, and God is going to take this Jewish descendant of David and keep him alive. And Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest are going to come back and rebuild the temple. And Zerubbabel's line is going to continue all the way down to Jesus, who can die on the cross and save you and I. And so if you were Spock reading your Old Testament, you would say, Captain, this is a very dangerous text. The Jewish dynasty through whom will come the Messiah has been taken into captivity. If that king dies with his seed, 
then humanity is lost. And Captain Kirk would say, look at chapter 17, verse 22, a prophecy. I'm going to take a lofty top of the cedar, the Jewish king, and I'm going to set it out. I'm going to protect him. Are we glad? And then I will pluck from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one. You'll find a baby lying in a manger. And he shall be Christ the Lord. And so I'm going to take a tender one and I'm going to plant him on a high and lofty mountain. I'm going to make him the king of the earth. And on verse 23, on the high mountain of Israel, I will plant it. Do y'all believe someday that a Jewish king is going to appear in glory, come down and establish his kingdom in Jerusalem? You do if you're a member here. We are premillennial. We believe in this because we believe the prophecy. This prophecy is made during the Jewish exile. Ezekiel's called an exilic prophet. That it may bring forth boughs, bear fruit, be a stately cedar, and what's the next word? Birds. Question. Who are the birds? Look around. It's Doug Barber. Does that frighten you? It does me. Is Doug Barber prophesied? Yes, there he is. Birds of every kind. What does that mean, every kind? We're going to have white guys, black guys, Hispanic guys. We're going to have people from Austin, A&M. Uh, we're going to have them from the Philippines. We're going to have Bushmen from the outback of Australia. I'm going to turn heaven into the biggest birdcage you've ever seen. And they will nest in its branches. Now you look at your, does your cross-reference give you Matthew 13, Mark chapter 5? It ought to. If it doesn't, send it back. Okay. Christ takes this and puts this in his parable. So go back to Mark in chapter 4. Now when you look at verse 32, does it make more sense? Yes. It's going to start small, but this kingdom is going to grow huge and the birds of the air will nest under its shade. It will form large branches. Folks, do we have security in Christ? Do we have rest in Christ? Just like Jesus said 20 centuries ago, this is the kingdom of the church. It's not the second coming where he appears in glory. No, this is the mystery of the church. It's going to start just so baby in a manger, man on a cross, man in a tomb, man to Mary Magdalene. It's going to grow so huge that it'll be every place in the world. Well, uh, why a mustard seed? It's a mystery. And another key point is this kingdom is not going to take over the world. It's going to coexist. 
Someday our king will return. But right now, this kingdom coexists. It's not going to take over through cannon and rifle shot and sword. Napoleon, when he was on the island of St. Helena, oh, let's see, yep, St. Helena, he was dying of cancer, exiled for the second time. And Napoleon said, I founded my kingdom by the sword and by the shedding of blood. This man founded his by love and by sacrifice. Today, millions would and have died for him. No one would die for me. I know men, and I tell you that Jesus of Nazareth is no mere man. He is God. And so this kingdom is going to coexist. There will be no takeovers. It's going to spread like a thing of life. And the woman at the well ran into the city and said to the men, come meet a man who told me all that I've done. And Jesus remained with them for two days. And they said to him, no longer to the woman do we believe because of what you said. We have seen for ourselves. And we know that this one is the savior of the world. First time the term's ever used in the Bible is by the Samaritans. He's the savior of the world. Well, what's the lesson here? You ready? We are a kingdom. We're a living thing that's gonna grow huge. And you are the birds. I'm a bird that we rest in the branches. But we are a kingdom. Question, do we have a king? Jesus, do we have a constitution, the Bible? Do we have uh, rules by which we live? Yes, we do. Do we have someday a destiny when the Lord returns? Uh, we are a miracle kingdom. And our job is to speak and to show who we are and to influence our culture, and then to endure. Does everybody hate us? When they get down to what we believe, we're an aroma of death because we testify to philosophy, to religion, and to politics that it will give way to the Word of God, the Lamb of God, and the King of God. And so, uh, and remember this today, is there a little dissonance out there today between the world and us? Yes. We have abortion, and it's about to be funded. Do y'all know that? Hang on. It's about to be funded. We have sodomy. We've always had sodomy, but it wasn't enforced as a protected right. We uh, have atheism, and it is enforced in many colleges. They're going to teach you and punish you if you are not. We have amorality. There are no rules. We have, are we beginning to have censorship? Yeah. I will shut your voice down. I thought we had freedom of speech. We do, just not you. The traditional home, is that being shaken? Yeah. Heck, 
male and female, is being shaken. Amen and a woman. Is evolution taught as fact? Is creation punished? Do we have now the revising of history? Yes, we do. And so, we're a kingdom, and we stand, because we're going to win. I read ahead. We're going to win. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. If we endure, we're going to reign with him. You just keep on. We're the one kingdom that has to endure. You keep on. It has been said that the preparation for the church was laid in Ezra, Esther, Nehemiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. Those were the exiles where Israel was out of their native land and they were among the pagans. It began a time that was called the times of the Gentiles. And uh, you see some of the greatest heroes of the Old Testament as the Old Testament is fading away. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Esther, Mordecai, Nehemiah. Um, you see these, Daniel especially, you see these massive characters and they should look very familiar because this people of Israel to maintain their culture has to establish what's called a synagogue that are going to have elders that are going to have the Bible taught in native Hebrew so they won't be absorbed into their culture. They will maintain. They will have a place of worship. That synagogue is going to morph in the New Testament into something else of a group of people in a pagan land with a center of worship with leaders and elders and a Bible that is proclaimed, morality that is preserved, What's the entity that it will morph into? The church. And so it's like God prepares the world at the end of the Old Testament into the beginning of the new. That's who we are. And so our job is to, quote, pray for their welfare and seek their welfare, for in their welfare shall be your welfare. So we're going to be a blessing to the world. We're going to speak. We're going to be the best of citizens until they ask us to defy our God. And then we stand. We don't kill everybody, but we say, if you're going to kill me, you need to kill me. But here I will not move. Ezra set his heart. Sorry. Daniel set his heart. He would not defile himself with the king's choice food. No, I can't go there. Then you'll die. Then I'll die. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you're going to bow down to this image. No, we're not then I'm going to heat the furnace up until you think about it. I love what they said. We don't need to think about it. We don't need to think about it. Our God is able to deliver us any will, but if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to your image. Nah, nah, not boo-boo. <laughs> heat it up. Heat it up. Daniel says, throw me in. Lion's den. He'll be with me. Amen. Heat the furnace up. He'll walk with me. 
uh, Esther, I'll go in and plead for my people. If I perish, I'll perish. But she didn't. And so you see the exiles, they are aliens, they are submissive to a point. They speak out. When you get to heaven, look for Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to be there because Daniel led him to faith. We have a place to preserve our culture. We have a book. We just have more than Daniel did. He had the Old Testament. We have the New. Also, those guys in the Old Testament had a promise from Jeremiah uh, chapter 25, verse 11. After 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. And so they endured with hope, knowing that someday they were going home. Is that true for us? Yeah. So you hang tough. So you understand now more than you did about the mustard seed. That's who we are. Father in heaven, thank you for the gospel of Mark that is just a pep talk to the children of God to let us know that uh, what you're going through, I saw 20 centuries ago. What you're enduring now, I've already seen it. It's old news to me. It's yesterday's news. And it's been laying there for 20 centuries just waiting for you to read it. I know where you are, and I know who you are, and I know what's going on, and I'm in charge. And we have no illusions that the kingdom of the prince of the power of the air is going to bring about man's redemption. The commies aren't going to do it. The Hindus, the Buddhists, the Muslims, they're not going to do it. Cultural Marxism is not going to do it. We're going to do it. And we're going to wait for our king. We waited for him to come and die and give us life. We'll wait for him to appear and rule to give us glory. And so I pray during this time of disease and humanly speaking, uncertainty, that we might find our rest in what has always been true. But sometimes we're not aware of it until we get threatened. And that is the solidity of God's word. And so we rest. And like Daniel, we will pray three times a day facing the east where we're going to go home, knowing this is not our final home. And we'll rest. Like Daniel, we will examine in the books and discover the words of Jeremiah concerning the desolations of Jerusalem, meaning 70 years. Daniel was a man of the Bible. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of resolve. He was a man of witnessing. He was a man of truth. And so shall we be. And we'll ask it through Christ our Lord.